This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Bone Arrow. Nestled in a dark and cozy workshop in Nottingham, England, a raven-haired witch sits at a big wooden jewelry bench made by her father, making magic in metal. Goldsmith, jeweler, conjurer of dark delights, Claire Gregory designs and makes bewitching jewelry under the name Bone Arrow. From dagger necklaces which double as athames with secret compartments for herbs, to rings stacked together to cast wearable spells, Bone Arrow offers talismanic, meaningful jewelry for witches, weirdos, and magical misfits. Visit Claire's website at bonearrow.com or peer through the misty windows of Instagram at bonearrow underscore. This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Lunar Leos. Lunar Leos was founded in 2021 by two mystic Leos curating witchy goods, spell tools, and occult learning to help connect us with the magic within. With their offerings, Lunar Leos strives to celebrate the glory of natural magic and support the wider witch community by supplying both herbal ritual products and sharing folk craft traditions with like minds. Lunar Leos products are small batch, naturally derived, skin safe, and woman owned, and their learning and spellwork tools are offered via Patreon. Lunar Leos offers hand-spelled ritual oils, intentional botanical sprays, and salt soaks for your spellwork, herbal teas and spiritual waters to cleanse, bless, and protect both your sacred spaces and your physical and auric bodies. Lunar Leos is a bi-coastal small business with every item handmade and charmed by the witches in charge. Witchwave listeners can use the discount code Welcome to the Coven at checkout for 20% off any order. That's welcome to the coven, one word. And you can follow along on Instagram at Lunar Leos LLC and on TikTok at Lunar.Leos to keep up with their journey. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. Hello and welcome to The Witch Wave. So we are officially in Gemini season, Gemini being the sign of the cosmic twins. And because of that, I've been thinking so very much about the notion of sacred pairs. 
If you're a member of the Witchwave Patreon group, you may have attended my Gemini virtual circle or watched the recording of it where I talked about this very theme in detail. But for the rest of you, a quick summary of it is that in Greek mythology, the Gemini twins were Castor and Pollux. But according to the myth, their mom, Leda, was impregnated by two different dudes, one being Zeus in his guise as a swan, which, as some of you may recall, is a pretty brutal story, and the other being King Tyndareus, who was, of course, mortal. And so even though Leda had twins, Castor was born mortal, and Pollux was born a demigod, thus immortal. And as the story goes, Pollux asks Zeus to make his brother Castor immortal as well, which he did, and so the two brothers are immortalized together as the constellation Gemini. But the thing that intrigues me most about all this is that it brings to mind the principle of the union of opposites, which is one of the great secrets of life. Yes, you heard it here. I am giving you one of the great answers, one of the great mysteries, one of the great keys. I know, here, now, for free. Oh my goodness. There is, of course, so much mystery and so much we do not and cannot know. But in all of my studies of various esoteric traditions, the union of opposites is a trope that so often comes up, whether we're talking the yin-yang or the magician card of the tarot, or as today's guest Brian Cotnoir talks about, the alchemical rebus. More on that later. But these are all symbols of the integration of opposing elements or forces. Mortal and immortal, light and darkness, masculine and feminine, macro and micro, or as the emerald tablet in alchemy famously states, as above, so below. And to become an enlightened being, our goal as humans is to figure out how to integrate these opposites in our own lives and thus become a shimmering constellation unto ourselves. How do we find equilibrium between these poles and become this third new thing that is able to hold all of these opposing forces within us and who can fluidly shift between them and or blend them together and find great wisdom, magic, and truth in doing so. This is the goal, or one of the goals. I love being a witch, because witches are no stranger to being this container for all of these complexities, light and shadow, birth and death, the new moon and the full moon, and all the phases in between. And it reminds me of how one of my prior guests, Starhawk, writes in her book, The Spiral Dance, about the importance of us using both what she calls starlight vision and flashlight vision. Starlight vision uses one's intuition, imagination, and embraces the so-called irrational, 
whereas flashlight vision uses one's focus and rationality and analysis to interface with the mundane, which of course is crucial too. We need both of these types of vision. And being able to switch between these modes of seeing makes one a more effective witch, certainly, but also a more integrated person overall. One of my heroes, who comes up a lot on this podcast, the artist and writer Leonora Carrington describes something similar in her incredible book, Down Below. In it, she writes, quote, to possess a telescope without its other essential half, the microscope, seems to me a symbol of the darkest incomprehension. The task of the right eye is to peer into the telescope, while the left eye peers into the microscope. Unquote. As above, so below, in other words. And in his new book, on alchemy, today's guest, the alchemist and artist Brian Cotnoir, writes, quote, Alchemical practice is both an inner and outer practice, the result of which is the union of these two aspects of practice, unquote. Throughout the book, he also calls this seeing with two eyes. I can't even tell you how much I loved talking to Brian about all of this and more. I had so much fun and my brain and spirit felt so enlivened by our conversation that there were literally points during it when I felt high. It was that wonderful for me and I hope that it will be for you too. But before we get to that, first let's check and see what's come through on The Witch Wire. Who is it? Wishes. Natalie writes, Last week, I witnessed a beautiful gray cat struck by a car. I rushed him to the vet, but tragically, he did not make it. I was devastated, to say the least. I performed a small ceremony for him and tried to move on. A few nights later, I attended your Hexenacht ceremony, which was gorgeous, by the way, I pulled my deck's version of the Queen of Wands, and there before my eyes was the spitting image of the little gray cat. I felt in my bones that I had gained a new spirit familiar and guardian. I can't tell you how relieved I was to feel my little friend at peace. I would love any advice you have on how to work with my new friend. Thank you so much for all the wisdom you share. Hi, Natalie. Thank you so much for attending the workshop, and thank you for your lovely words, and thank you for writing this note. I find this story to be really moving because it illustrates what I've been talking about today, which is intentionally cultivating the balance of opposites so that we can access deeper knowing and more fully interface with the magical. So, you witnessed a, what turned out to be a descent, a death, and rather than turning away from it, you walked toward it. You took a creature you did not know and were not expecting to encounter, you saw that it was in pain, and you took it to the vet to try to help it, 
And thus, you were seeing with flashlight vision, with focus, and working with what appeared to you in the material world. Here is a cat. It is suffering. I'm going to try to help it with the material means, the medical means that I have access to. But when you learned that it was time for this cat to cross over, you kept walking alongside it. You did a ritual for him, a magical act of respect and care to help send him across the veil with blessings. This is you seeing with starlight vision. And then, yes, in my Hexenacht workshop with Jonica, we did a lot of work with the Queen of Wands, who, to my mind, is the fiery creative witch of the tarot deck, who is usually accompanied by a cat, and who I also see as related to Circe and other witches who have a deep connection to the animal world and to their own instinctual self. And so not only did one of the symbols of this workshop resonate with you, but the very card you pulled in your deck showed this cat as being gray and looking like the very cat that you connected with. And you knew this was a sign, right? As you said, you felt it in your bones. And that kind of knowing is also an example of seeing with starlight vision. This is intuition. This is imaginative reality. And no, that is not an oxymoron. And so from an esoteric perspective, and certainly from my perspective, you have leveled up a little bit. You have experienced a descent and then an ascent. And you are now being shown that that experience was deeply magical and important for you. Spirit shows us these things that we're supposed to pay attention to, often in just the way you described, through signs, synchronicities, mythopoesis, and a knowingness that is so hard to put into words because it is subjective, and yet I totally understand what that is, and I believe you. I know this to be true. And so what I would say for you is to keep this relationship between you and your ethereal gray feline friend going in the same way that it started, which is for you to see with both starlight vision and flashlight vision, which is for you to engage with the material and the spiritual. So I suggest you do something in the physical world and something in the non-physical world for you to deepen this connection. So maybe here in the physical world, you put out some kind of marker of remembrance for it, or you leave a bowl of milk as an offering outside. Maybe you give it a name. You know, you do something that represents and honors your relationship here in the physical world. And then for the more intangible part, the more spiritual part, Perhaps you can set an intention before you go to sleep to meet this kitty in a dream and see what messages it may have for you. Or maybe you do a spell to ask it to continue to work with you, whether to help you see or know more magical things or to protect you or to lead you to maybe your next pet that you're supposed to have. I truly believe that my two prior cats who crossed over helped lead us to our two current cats. So just another idea there. Now, I don't know exactly 
if this spirit cat is meant to be your guardian, your guide, your familiar from the other side, some combination of all of that or something else entirely, it sounds like you are confident that you know that it is meant to help you and connect with you in some way. But by continuing this magical relationship with the cat, both using material and spiritual approaches, by seeing with both eyes, in other words, I am sure that you will gain more clarity about this witchy cat of wands and how you are meant to work together. Keep me posted and may some spectral purring be in your future. Now, on to my guest. Brian Cotnoir is an alchemist, artist, and award-winning filmmaker. He is the author of many books, including Alchemy, The Poetry of Matter, Practical Alchemy, Guide to the Great Work, The Emerald Tablet, Various Alchemical Meditations, and a series of alchemical zines. His newest book, on Alchemy, Essential Practices and Making Art as Alchemy will be out on June 13th and is available for pre-order now. Brian has also presented seminars and workshops around the world on various aspects of alchemy, including at the Occult Humanities Conference that I co-organize with Jesse Bransford. He is also the founder of Kepri Press, which was started in 2014, through which he organizes and distributes his alchemical work of all sorts, including books, zines, and prints, and they are all gorgeous and hugely illuminating, by the way. Brian joined me from his home in Manhattan via Zoom. Brian Cotnoir, welcome to the Witch Wave. Thanks, Pam. Good to be back in touch, right? It is so good to be back in touch. I have the benefit of seeing you on screen right now, which, of course, our listeners won't have that benefit. But you and I have known each other. I calculated this before right. we got on for 16 years. Isn't that yes, wild? Totally. Talks I was giving at Open Center, I that's exactly it. I took one of your classes. I'm forgetting the title. Forgive me. I think it was a pretty fundamental yeah. Alchemy 101, if you will, class. Right. And you and I have seen each other many times over the years, and you've presented at conferences. And you turned me on to Prometheus. <gasps> yes, Promethea, one of my very favorite graphic novel series by Alan Moore. Ooh, maybe we'll get into that later. We'll see where things flow for us. But I actually think that starting with the fundamentals here, just as I did when I was first learning from you at the Open Center, is a really good place to start. Because as I said to you off mic, a lot of my listeners are familiar with witchcraft, and I think they're familiar with the concept of alchemy broadly right. and the metaphor of alchemy. But I would love to just give people a baseline in terms of what we are talking about when we are talking about alchemy. So I'm going to ask the basic question to you, sure. which is, Brian, what is alchemy? <laughs> this is the question. I mean, that's the question anybody who gets involved in this. It's like, okay, what is this thing that we are talking about, right? Yes. And I've been at this for probably way too long than I should have been, but... How long, Brian? Oh, over 50 years. Mm -hmm. And... Over the time, 
and of various readings and definitions of other alchemists from the past, primarily Paracelsus, is a definition I use and always use and will trot out here again. That alchemy is the art and a science of bringing something to its final perfection. Mm. And then you need to think of the word perfection and more in the terms of completion. Okay. And it's an art and a science. So to open that up, what does that all mean? Well, yes. it's an art and a science. It's something that has an objectivity and experimental aspect to it. But at the same time, there's an art aspect. And think of medicine. Mm -hmm. This is a practice that is both art and science. You have what the science says from the laboratory's experimentation. This shows us what the best practices are. Experience may say something different for an individual. Someone who had 40 years experience dealing with a particular disease would see somebody, right? Mm -hmm. Scientific practice dictates one thing, but your knowledge, your experience, the art of it says, well, actually, we need to do this. So it's an art and a science. Mm -hmm. And this is alchemy, right? There's a laboratory, there's a testing. There's a saying that developed in the 17th century per ignium, by fire. Mm. You test it. If it's gold, it's be all right. If it isn't, well, you know. Let me pause you there, Brian. You mentioned gold. And I think the most basic layperson who thinks of alchemy thinks literally of people this who, exactly it. yes, transmuted lead into gold is usually the phrase people use. This is one of those things that can be used to bring to its perfection, right? And that's how the alchemists viewed it. That thing, something that you could use. Well, for traditional alchemy, the lead into gold is exactly that. Lead and gold, all the metals were seen as a spectrum. Imperfect lead to perfect gold. Perfect meaning completed. There's no other metal beyond gold, so it's completed. Mm -hmm. And that's the way to think of that, right? In terms of perfection, not so much perfection as, oh... Flawlessness. Flawlessness. Which is boring and impossible. Right, completed, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the idea. So that thing can be metals or that thing can be the soul, right? This was another way that alchemy was spoken of, the ascent of the soul from the imperfect to union with the one. This is that other thing that can be done. And that idea of perfection is, as I was saying, completion. Think of the perfect tense. Mm -hmm. If you think of creation as language, whatever, it's something that is completely done, finished. Okay. So let's talk historically. Sure. There were literal human beings, perhaps scientists of the age, who were working with chemicals and Absolutely. materials and who were trying to transform these things and make them more complete or more perfect, as you're saying. Were they also thinking of this as a spiritual exercise or is it that they were doing this version of science and then later people like Carl Jung, who a lot of listeners will be familiar with, mm -hmm. went and superimposed a spiritual metaphorical framework right. onto something that they were doing literally or trying to do literally? Can you talk about that? Yes, I can, because the answer to all of that is absolutely yes in all those aspects. This is the funny <laughs> thing about alchemy. No, it's really, really, really true. It's like, yeah, people from the present project their ideas of what should have been going on into the past. Yes. And it's that there is a physical practice, I would say, almost always. There's some sort of laboratory experimentation. It's more about the probing of the universe to understand it. There is an inner aspect, a spiritual aspect to it that's often brought in by the religion or the philosophy of the individual. 
So for instance, Arabic alchemy, Islamic alchemy will be embodied within Sufism, mm -hmm. a more mystical aspect of it, but it's there. Jabir ibn Hayyan was Shiite, early alchemist, very early alchemist, a very early chemist, but his teacher was an alchemist of the seventh Shiite imam. Mm. So you have this deep inner spiritual practice, and particularly like say within Islam or Arabic alchemy, to understand the creation is to understand the creator and you get closer. So this idea of questioning nature, investigating nature, was also a way of getting closer to God, the creator. Earlier, or part of that, is some of the Greco-Roman alchemy, which is actually using art practice as a spiritual practice. Yes. As a Neoplatonic meditative, that when they say, oh, we're making gold, but it's not the gold of the ordinary people. This is the gold of the philosophers. Mm. You follow these processes, you will end up with what looks like silver and looks like gold. I mean, it is on the outside. Mm -hmm. You follow the processes, you'll end up with it. It'll never fool a goldsmith or a silversmith. Mm -hmm. But if you follow the processes and what the ideas are involved in it, you bought this through its philosophical journey to its completion. And with that, there's a reflection of what goes on within you. And I don't mean that in any woo-woo kind of way, right? Oh, it's like quantum physics. No, it's really more basic than that. It's like dreams. The more you do what you do when you do on the outside, in the day world, in the wake world, you start doing in your dreams. Mm. So many things are flooding oh, into yeah. my mind, of course, of course. I'm already like, how do we make this a 10-part series, Brian? But anyhow, we'll stick to the hour that we have. <laughs> I love that thought, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> what this makes me think of is how in witchcraft, we often talk about how witchcraft is an embodied practice. It's not just about visualizing things or meditation, though that's important. Yep. There's a physicality. There's a connection with material items and aspects of nature and with the body. Right. And so we're trying to harmonize or integrate the outer with the inner, the subtle with the dense, you know, the yeah. terrestrial with the celestial, right? Right. right. And this is alchemy. Mm. And that's why for me as a witch, I've always been very attracted to alchemy because to me it's another language, but mm -hmm. we're kind of pointing towards the same things, right? It seems so. I would say yes. Here's another commonality, like a deep, deep, deep root, right? One of the other definitions or one of the other aspects of alchemy is it is the process of ascent through descent. Yes. You descend into the body, you descend into matter, and you come out the other side, so to speak. And there are images in alchemy that depict this in terms of its symbolism, that if you're not really paying attention, you just miss it. Mm. It's about the in-between, and it's about accessing that. The liminal. Precisely. And alchemy lives between the two eternities, let's put it this way, between the upper infinite and the inner infinite. Ooh, I just got chills when you said that, the two eternities, Brian. Well, oh. you know, there's a crust in between. That's us. We're the foe. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. Take that walk on the spiral through the Museum of Natural History. Mm -hmm. That thing from the very large scale of the galaxies down to the atom. Do that as a visualization. Yes. Well, let's actually talk about that because you have a new book that's about to come out, depending on when this airs. I believe it is about to come out. Maybe it just came out. And it is called... On Alchemy, Essential Practices, and Making Art as Alchemy. And in this book, you give us many exercises 
that you are suggesting that we, the reader, do in order to start practicing alchemy in our life as people, as creative beings, perhaps as scientists or chemists if we decide we do want to experiment with metals. But that's just one example of a way in which we can become alchemists. And one of the exercises you have us do is picture something from the macro down into the layers, almost like zooming in, zooming in, zooming in in our minds to the cellular level, the atomic level. And beyond. Can you talk about that? It's an elemental meditation to kind of show you that there's really nothing intrinsically there. It's kind of an emptiness meditation. Do you want me to go through it very quickly? Yes, please. Okay. So what you do is very quickly, if you just take a look, pick an object, any object around you. I have a teacup here. This is the one I use in the book, the empty cup. Mm -hmm. I actually did a little zine called the empty chair that was this thing spread. Anyhow. I love your zines. We're going to hopefully talk about them. Yeah. So the idea is... Pick an object, any object around you, and then notice an edge of it. And then imagine yourself kind of zooming in. So I have a teacup here made of ceramic. So I'm imagining here, okay, stream surface, I'm seeing the ceramic, uh, crystal structure of clay, silica. So you go in a little further and you start seeing even more detailed structure. You go in further, perhaps molecules, whatever that image you may have from high school or chemistry, whatever, however far you got with that, right? But then there's another level sustaining that, right? Which is far more subtle. Electron, neutron, proton, picture that as you will. And then you go deeper until it's the subatomic particles and then deeper still. And I've studied physics and it's almost like it just becomes this very fine gradient of energy explained by strange mathematics, right? Mm -hmm. And then go beyond that. And then just rest your mind there for a while and then look back up at the object that you were looking at. It's like at the same time, there's nothing. This is an alchemical dissolution. This is how you can imagine how something is really kind of nothing. If you remember in the Matrix, it's like, well, first you must realize there is no spoon. <laughs> yes, 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 well, yes. This yes. is this is kind of what it, that's kind of hinting at. Mm. We have this experience of these two eternities, right? Or these two worlds. One is the concrete, the everyday. At the same time that we're seeing this cup here, it's really not there. Yes. And why do you think this particular meditation of going from the macro to the micro is so valuable? I feel it is because it's part of how we recreate the world every second. I mean, we put together the world in our brains by breaking it down and stopping it like this or slowing it down. You can start to see that there's a deeper sense of being almost. I mean, if you really sat with this and not just as a quick exercise, but as a deep meditation, you start to feel that other side of this eternity, so to speak. Right. So that's one of the benefits of it. There are many other ones, too. Plus, also, when you come back out or you snap back and you go, what is this thing? You start to realize this idea of naming of something that wasn't there was amorphous beforehand. And now all of a sudden, now it has a name cup. Yes. This is one of my favorite topics, Brian, by the way. Yeah. Yes. And so this is it. It's like that in between liminal where there's really nothing, but there's something. And then all of a sudden there's that, oh, cup. Right. Right. But what are we putting together? Mm hmm. And how little are we putting together anyhow? It strikes me that, and tell me if you think I'm right in this, and I'm going to use the word God very broadly because I know a lot of listeners have associations with like the biblical God of the Bible and Mm -hmm. some negative associations. But I just mean what I call capital S spirit, 
force, the one. But it seems to me that whatever that is, if we believe that that is the ultimate creator, Mm -hmm. that being an artist or being an alchemist is trying to connect to that creator inside all of us. And so the whole as above, so below, which is one of the most famous alchemical adages, is about, okay, not in a blasphemous way we're trying to be God, but in a sacred way, we are trying to create the world because Mm -hmm. we are extensions of the ultimate creative force that there is. Absolutely right. And this is alchemy. This is exactly it. I mean, (laughs) here's another way of saying it, right? Instead of God, instead of these other, because it can start to bring up what I usually refer to it as unity of being. It comes out of some of the Sufi mysticism, some other ideas, things like this, but there's not a creator there necessarily, but yet there's an acknowledgement of an underlying unity of being throughout. Mm. So it allows if you are a deist and you want a creator, well, there's room there. If you're a non-theist and not necessarily, there's room for you there, right? Mm -hmm. But what it's acknowledging is we do have this deeper deeper experience right and i think as artists especially we play in the in-between right we're open to juxtapositions as soon as you start doing that it's like all right here we go we got leaps and we've got these odd juxtapositions and it's those cracks where the light can come through beautiful on that note we're gonna take a quick crack and (laughs) we'll be right back This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Hallowed Haircraft. Hallowed Haircraft is a holistic, private hair studio located in Santa Clarita, California, where Deirdre Vieira practices her eclectic craft, weaving plant medicine, Reiki, shamanism, and lunar phase work into her services. She is a lifelong student of the esoteric arts and identifies as an eclectic pagan animist. Being able to use her haircraft is a way for her to bring restoration to the etheric body and to the crown of hair we wear in everyday life. Hair magic is a lost art, and using the moon phases to enhance hair appointments has become a particular passion for her. Deirdre has worked in many facets of the industry, being most proud of her work within the transgender community, as well as being a hair practitioner for those who have immune system disorders, and for her wholehearted shift into low-tox, biodynamic, and cruelty-free products and practices. She is well-versed in cold cap care and post-chemotherapy hair care, as well as high-risk pregnancy hair color services and dealing with hair loss from postpartum, anxiety, medications, and more. In her private suite, you will find a safe space to create a transformation in not just your hair, but your mind, body, and spirit. Her pricing is gender neutral, based on time and products, and she is comfortable with all texture types and welcomes a diverse clientele. You can find out more at www.hallowedhaircraft.com or via her Instagram at hallowedhaircraft. That's H-A-L-L-O-W-E-D haircraft. The Witch Wave is sponsored by BetterHelp. Balance is something that I'm always striving for, and I imagine you can relate to that. 
There is so much to keep track of between looking after other people and looking after ourselves. And striking a balance between that inward focus and that outward focus is so important. When we don't and we're only focused outward, it can leave us feeling stretched really thin and burnt out. This happens to me more often than I'd care to admit, and I know you can probably relate to this. But finding that balance is replenishing, and therapy can help us find that balance. It can give us the tools that we need to find more balance in our lives so that we can keep focusing outwards and doing our work and showing up for other people without leaving ourselves behind. Along with witchcraft, therapy has been a crucial aspect of my self-care, of me finding that balance in my life. I've been in therapy for decades and decades, and I can't say enough good things about it. I truly wish I could wave my magic witchy wand and give everybody access to therapy because it is so important and so transformative. It has made me feel less stressed out, less out of balance, and more in tune with who I am and what I need so that I can be more present and creative and give more and not burn myself out constantly. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited for your schedule. And all you have to do to get started is fill out a brief questionnaire in order to get matched with a licensed therapist. And you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge to make sure you find someone who's the right match for you and the balance that you need. Find more balance with better help. Visit BetterHelp.com slash WitchWave today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash WitchWave. Would you like even more WitchWave? Do you wish you could hear from me and my other bewitching guests on a weekly basis? Then come join us on Patreon, where you'll get bi-weekly bonus Witch Wave Plus episodes, ad-free Witch Wave episodes, and detailed show notes for all. Rewards for some tiers also include magical merch and contests where you can win witchly prizes each month, as well as early heads up about my workshops before they sell out. And all backers get access to our exclusive digital coven, where I lead monthly online rituals and where you can connect to a community of other wonderful witch wave witches around the world. So head on over to patreon.com slash witchwave and sign up. It's a fabulous way to get more magic in your life and to support the show. Thank you so much. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Brian Cotnoir. So Brian, I want to talk about alchemical manuscripts because I think a lot of people get attracted to alchemy. Speaking of graphic novels, which we mentioned earlier, they almost yeah. look like comics. Well, I have a lot to say on that. Ooh, I want to hear it. I want to <laughs> hear it. So can you talk a little bit about these incredible psychedelic images and mm -hmm. texts and what these alchemical manuscripts or any other word that you would put in there 
what their purpose was and what they are, essentially, because Mm -hmm. visually they are so attractive and stimulating and exciting. But yeah, what was the purpose of them, the original intent? Well, there's a couple. One, there's a very high level of manuscript, which were done for bishops, churches, princes, things like this. And this is probably what people are familiar with. Would that be like the Ripley Scroll, for example? That, for instance, but more like the Splendor Solace. Yes. The Splendor Solace was printed or done, manuscript, 1532, and it's 22 images. And this is probably, if you aren't familiar with it, look it up. It is some of the most gorgeous art. And sorry, Brian, I'm just going to interject to say people hear me gush all the time about the Surrealists and Leonora Carrington and Remedios Varro. And a lot of those artists were looking at these images and are riffing on them in part in their work. I mean, such gorgeous imagery, wild imagery. Stunning. Stunning, Magical, magical. And if you go to the British Library website and look at their edition of it, you can zoom in on these manuscripts and you can't even call them miniatures. The panels are, I think, like nine inches by 13 inches, Mm -hmm. things like this. So the Splendor Solace, it's one of these manuscripts. Everybody's drawn to the images and they are absolutely astounding. And this comes out of sort of an ordinary manuscript tradition, right? Which is your laboratory notebook tradition. Can I ask you to describe some of the imagery, just since this is an auditory medium? Oh, yes. Just riff on some of the images, Brian. Okay. Well, here's one of my favorites. This is the one I feel is, for my opinion, the most symbolic of alchemy. Yes. Ooh. It is a rebus. A rebus is a two-headed unifying being. This is one of my favorite images of all time. Go ahead. Go ahead. Tell me how good I'm getting. Okay. Go, go, go. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a two-winged right? One head is male, one head is female, wearing a black garment, gold buckles, things like this. There's red and there's white there. In its left hand, it's holding an egg. And in its right hand, it's holding a shield. And in the shield, it's representing the earth in the center, water, right? It's like a landscape. Mm -hmm. And then surrounding that is air and then a ring of fire. (sighs) And then in its left, it's holding an egg. And it's just standing there on like this hill. And again, within the Splendor Solace, there's this use of space where these characters stand that is also liminal. It's a transitional point. Some of these occur in kind of city landscape, but the whole series, for the most part, it's on the outskirts of the city, manicured trees, what have you, but you know the woods are right behind you. Mm -hmm. So these beings are happening in these in-between spaces. So why I say this represents what I feel the heart of alchemy is because in the text itself, it's speaking of the four elements and that how the egg is the beginning and the end and here represented in the shield are the four elements. But also what it says when you read closely is that, all right, start with earth or where we're standing, right? Earth, water, air, fire, and above that is the ether, and then divided into what, but it's the ether. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, what is the egg? The quote within it, the text is quoting an older text, the Turbo Philosophorum, that says, well, the egg, the shell is earth, beneath that is water, then air, then fire, and the innermost is the ether. Mm-hmm. So here you have the two eternities, one ascending, one descending into it, and yet here you are, this being about to be unified. The previous plate was 
this black man coming up out of a swamp, white arm, right, red arm, black body turning white, gold, what have not gold, ruby head. Mm -hmm. And again, this angelic creature coming down, handing him this violet robe and about to wipe off and fly away. Uh, the rebus is that union. The right? integration. Where it's happened, but it's not finished yet because the heads are still there, right? But mm. again, it's that. So here's what you have happening. This is speaking about a process. The thing about these texts are that you can read them. There are a series of images that can be read as images. The texts are also as important, if not more important, than the images are. And as a matter of fact, this is where I find the parallel with graphic novels and film. I mean, that's one of the things I do. Yes. Is the integration of image, word, sound, text that completes an image without each one being complete in and of itself. So this is where the alchemical work is sometimes, is in this cognitive processing where you're trying to understand the image, but you can't understand the image without the text. You can't understand the text without knowing the backgrounds it's bathing in, right? mm -hmm. the mythic, poetic background, Ovid, Old Testament, these kinds of things. Sure. That resonate. They mentioned Virgil. If I say Virgil, right, the Roman poet Virgil, Mm -hmm. We think of, oh, the Roman poet Virgil. Right. In the 16th century, Virgil was a Magnus. He was a great magician. What? I didn't know that. Oh, in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, Virgil is a Magus, a great Magus who you quote. Sixth book of the Aeneid has deep secrets to the underworld. My jaw is on the floor. No, I know. This is what happens when you read alchemy very carefully. And then when you come across a quote by Virgil, you go, again, here's the Splendor Solace. There's two guys underneath a tree. One's pulling off a branch, handing it to another one. It's a direct illustration of the descent into the underworld and the advice that's given, right? The text itself is saying, oh, the Philosopher's Stone is like that tree. Every time you pull the thing off, it creates more gold. Well, the Philosopher's Stone keeps producing, baby. That's what the text says. Go <laughs> I like over. your translation, Brian. Right? You like it? That's wonderful. <laughs> uh-huh. You go read Virgil, and it goes like, okay, as you descend the underworld, there's a tree in the center. If you go back to the underworld, you need that branch. Because when you see Persephone, she's going to ask for it, and you need to give it to her. If you don't have that branch, you're not going home. Okay, so you're talking about these images, which are from a text, which is essentially about transformation. It's right. essentially about alchemy. It's here is how you take the base materials of life and somehow put them together to lead to this more perfect union or this completion, right, right. this integration. Was that text, though, being written as a chemical instruction manual or was it being written as a metaphorical spiritual manual or both like what was the intention of the person okay. yeah with that particular manuscript there's not a lot of hard hardcore facts we know who the artists are at this point they come out of the Durer school there's a whole link in with that really well first of all look at the manuscript this was done for the bishop of albrecht and there's a portrait of him by Cranach. Mm. The guy's wearing an ermine fur. I mean, dude's got money. Ooh, okay. okay. And swag. My goodness. We think about like these exquisite manuscripts as actually being in some laboratory rat's library or lab. They're not. 
this manuscript was done specifically for whatever his name, Bishop of Alder. A patron. Was. Yeah, and it was for his library. Okay. Okay. So think of it this way. This is in the 1530s alchemy, this idea of transmutational alchemy, of changing metals. What the book itself says is there's four things that are important. Why you do this? One, it creates a medicine that cures all disease. One, it will make you a lot of gold if you want it to. One, you can make malleable glass, right? Mm. That's an important thing if you think about it. You could make glass that's malleable. Wow. All mm. right, so that was one of the goals. And gems out of ordinary stones. And that's okay. what this book is about. So this is cutting edge science. So the way I look at it and the way I talk about it, think about some really multi-billionaire who is really interested in artificial life, robotics, AI, what have you, but then wants to get maybe four or five of the greatest artists to create a piece for him. And so these artists find in circulation in the underground, these interesting art manuals and things that folks were doing and actually making work. And so they draw from this and they create this work, right? When you read The Splendor Soul, 90% of it is just quotations from much earlier works. It'll mm. be like, oh, and so Adolphius says, and so like, you know, he said, lays it out. But this is also a tradition of biblical exegesis, which was you would have these texts so well memorized that you would then piece whole new works together from quotes and blend it together, right? Mm. Now, Thomas Aquinas is known for this. He's also suspected of having written the Aurora Consurgens, another image book. Mm. Now, Splendor Solace is based on the Aurora Consurgens. What you have in the text is this idea of this melding of a variety of texts that are describing this process, and then these images that are in play with this, mm. right? The thought is, originally, this just existed as a hand-to-hand -hand manuscript that people were saying and became known as this is a really important compilation. Guy hears it and goes, I want one. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, this gets amplified. Do you think this wealthy person wanted one just because of vanity and wanting something yeah. beautiful or because he actually wanted to do these chemical experiments? I would say more for vanity and for the necessity of collecting into a real thing. He just thought it was cool shit. Yeah, probably so. <laughs> but important cool shit. Yeah. I mean, really, if I'm going to have a book, I want that book. Yeah. If you've ever seen it, you'd want it too. Yeah. You know I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And you go, who's available? And it's like, well, the Glockenden family is. Got it. So let's get back to the notion of alchemy and art making, because right. you yourself, in addition to being to my mind, one of the foremost scholars and historians about alchemy, the history of it, the practice of it, you are also an artist. You're someone who makes films, you make zines, you make all kinds of other beautiful visual projects and written projects. You've written lots of books. So why do you think that studying alchemy is helpful to creative people? I mean, I can answer from my point of view. Right? Yes. You're the point of view I care about today, Brian. It's a language that shares in all things. It's a language that you could use to express in a variety of ways. And then also backwards, it becomes a framework within which to understand all things. Mm. It's a philosophy or a view of change, embodied change, what have you. If you're interested in change or making change, it's an interesting way of looking at it. 
And it's not that there's a one-to-one -one correspondence in one field to another. So you're not necessarily going to ask, okay, so what is the equivalent of the acids that are used in alchemy to this thing? Well, you might be able to play with that. You understand what I mean. There's not necessarily a one-to-one -one correspondence. Right. But do you think it's fair to say that in the same way somebody might study Kabbalah, or they might be followers of like the mm -hmm. Tao and that alchemy is almost like the Western esoteric version of mysticism? I think it can be, especially if it engages more of an inner practice. And this is what I was alluding to a little bit earlier, that when you actually do physical work, and this is what the Greco-Roman unions are expressing as well, it starts to show up in the dream world. And then what happens when it starts to show up in the dream world, eventually, if you're doing proper dream work, which they encourage, is you wake up within the dream. And then you usually wake up within the dream doing the work that you do during the day. And this is where things get interesting, right? There's a whole tradition within alchemy of having a dream, having someone instruct you in and then come back out and go, oh, that's it. Yeah, you write about this. Your phrase is dream incubation. Right. Well, that's not my phrase. That's a very ancient Greek phrase. Yes, yes, yes. This is what you went into. If you had an illness, you'd go into a temple, pose a question, sleep, and the god or your dream interpreted by the priest would be. But that's exactly what it is. It's using this technique of kind of setting the mind. So there's two ways this goes. One is you have a dream that shows you something, indicates something, and that you bring out into the day world and you can work with it. Or there's usually, if you're open to it, an indication to go a little further in the opposite direction, right? Begin to open up that channel into something that is, where did I just read it? By Giordano Bruno, through the center from perfection to perfection to the infinite one, something like that. Wow. Yeah, he, yeah, anyhow, that's a whole nother discussion topic. And alchemy, if people study alchemy, you believe that one of the alchemical techniques that they can learn is dream incubation? Is that right? This is the hard thing about alchemical texts. You will find them referred to. Mm -hmm. Perfect example of this comes out of like the third century between Zosimos and Theosabia. They're having a discussion. He's explaining this one particular process. And then she's like, okay, well, I think it's like, and he goes, well, meet me in a vision. Ooh. And she goes, well, how do I do that in the daytime? And he goes, oh, well, here's how conquer the 12. And once we get there, don't speak, let it happen. When we come back, we can talk. So what are these 12? Well, in the Corpus Hermeticum, and this is something I mentioned in the new book on alchemy, mm -hmm. some of the reference there. In the Corpus Hermeticum, there is a thing about, okay, how do I get to this unity? He goes, well, you must first destroy the 12 fatalities. And he goes, oh, do I have these things? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, well, what are they? And then he starts to name them sort of impatience, all these sort of things. And he goes, once you calm these, once you calm that, all of a sudden you will find this basic silence that the shepherd can descend. Mm. Mm. What it is, which you'll find in an actual alchemical text are references to things, but no explanation of necessarily technique because it's sort of assumed in a way. It's like bakers saying, if you're making bread, oh yeah, don't forget to add water. Right. Well, you do need water, right? You do know that. It's like, okay, got it. Got it. So this is where you find it. But as you start looking at things, you start to understand, well, mind is mind, right? Human brain is human brain. And you start to find these things in different traditions. So within Orthodox Christianity, you find many of the Neoplatonic practices. 
shifted away from the multitude of divinity as imminence throughout all matter and then recombined into a stature to bring in the spirit of the God, but instead subsumed into the body of Christ. Mm. So that if you take all those ideas which you read within Byzantine orthodoxy about image making, soul descending. Iconography. Right. It's Neoplatonic. And this is a hint to the inner practices of alchemy. Mm. You just mentioned a lot of Christian themes. It's fair to say, though, that alchemy is something that can be practiced by anybody, correct? Oh, you don't yeah. have to have a religious background in Christianity. Hey, look at me. <laughs> <laughs> they let me in. They'll let anybody in. <laughs> I love that. On that note, we're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back. Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab is a specialty fragrance house currently celebrating its 20th year, now based in Philadelphia. Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab specializes in formulating body and household blends with a dark, romantic, gothic tone. And over the years, they've collaborated with so many of my heroes, including Neil Gaiman, Guillermo del Toro, and the Jim Henson Company. They continually return to inspirations drawn from history, mythology, literature, pop culture, and fine art, and they have a sister store called Twilight Alchemy Lab that creates oils blended and consecrated specifically for use in witchcraft and ritual magic. Keep up with their latest seasonal perfume releases by looking them up on social media. And Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab also now has a YouTube channel where they share scent reviews, announcements, and original video art. Perfume archives and customer reviews going back many years can be found at the fanrun bpal.org web forum. And of course, you can order all of Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab's decadent perfumes, oils, and more at blackphoenixalchemylab.com. Hi, Witch Wavers. I have exciting news. At long last, we have some new Witch Wave merch available for you now through TeePublic. We decided to go with TeePublic for our new Witch Wave merch because it is a print-on-demand site, which means you can get different variations of the Witch Wave logo printed on t-shirts, mugs, totes, stickers, magnets, notebooks, oh my gods, the sky's the limit. And the shirts come in different styles and fabrics and colors and are available in sizes small through 5XL, so you can order whatever you'll feel you're most magical in. So head on over to witchwavepodcast.com slash shop. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today I'm speaking with Brian Cotnoir. So, Brian, I feel like for someone who's just encountering the topic of alchemy for the first time, certainly they can read your many, many books on the topic, especially your new book on alchemy. But I also wonder how you specifically got interested in this topic. You talked about being fascinated by this and studying this for 50 plus years. But even though you and I have known each other for 16 of some of those years, I don't actually know your origin story. How did you become an alchemist? How did you get involved in this topic? 
Well, about 760 years ago, <laughs> I fell from a star. Oh, I knew it. It had to be something cool. I mean, come on. How else do you become an alchemist? And I'm here on a sort of a short-term project, which is about to be complete. <laughs> Hopefully not too soon, Brian. Let's not rush that. Yeah, so it's a funny thing because I always thought there was one origin to it, but it was much later that I realized that there was two. And it's much like the origins of alchemy in the West. There's a textual tradition, and then there is a manual tradition. The textual tradition I came across very early on. I had gotten my adult library card when I was oh, in grammar school because I kind of read through the kids section and there was nothing else to read. Where was this, Brian? Oh, yeah. I grew up in Mount Vernon, Mount Vernon, New York. Okay. Sort of a local boy. Oh, yeah. Very much so. Okay. Okay. I never asked you that in all this time we've known oh, one yeah, another. Yeah. I feel so rude. Mount Vernon Public Library. That's where it all started. Okay. Okay. So after school, I'd finish grammar school and I'd go over to the library, go to the upstairs, do my homework. And then I'd have an hour or so before I'd head home for dinner. So I would kill it by going up and down the book stacks, picking up at random books and just kind of reading everything and anything. Came to alchemy and it annoyed the hell out of me. <laughs> it was like I knew art because I drew my family, you know, and I knew science because I love science. What's this? Right. I was hooked. Do you remember the first book or books that you encountered? One by Reed, R-E-E-D, I think, or it's Titus Burkhart. Okay. If it's the Titus Burkhart, I'd be blown away. And what were these books called? The Titus Burkhart was, I think, just called Alchemy. Mm -hmm. And I think the one by Reed was something also <laughs> called Alchemy. So these were just modern writers or historians writing about alchemy? Yes. That you would find in the library, except yep. much later on, as I found out, Titus Burkhardt was majorly involved in like a sort of a neo-Sufic movement in the 1920s and 30s and stuff. And when I reread that work, I was like, wow, this guy knows what he's talking yeah, about. Yeah, this is the real shit. This was the real shit. Mm -hmm. It was that dissonance between the two, right? Of like, I understood science because this was what I did. Mm -hmm. And I understood art because that's what I did. Mm -hmm. But yet this is the thing that's like, I do both, but it intrigued me. So I just kept going back at it and kept going back at it. And then I just started reading throughout the library, everything esoteric that I could get my hands and fingers on. Yeah. I always call that hanging out in the low end of the Dewey Decimal System. That's it. Where all that's the cool, exactly. cool, cool shit is. Exactly it. That's exactly it. <laughs> and then the reading got deeper as far as I could go within that small library. And then I came across the name Samuel Weiser. Oh, yes. On the back of one of the books. And I think at age 13, my one of my older sisters and her boyfriends came into the city and they said, you want to come? And I was like, yes. So they were like, you want to go to a bookstore? Uh-huh. You got 20 minutes. It was torture. This was, of course, too. Weiser Books, right? Yes, exactly. Samuel Weiser's on Broadway and Waverly. I went in there. I had 20 minutes. I just did this quick scan, and behind it was a two-volume set of the Hermetic and Alchemical Writings of Paracelsus. And I was like, someday you will be mine. <laughs> and I just did. I just busted ass and hustled. I got as much money as I could, and $35, four years later, I bought it. Wow. But here's another little dark side. Me and a friend, like when we were 14 or so, we'd come down, we'd panhandle on First Avenue and Fifth Street. Mm. 
he'd go off with some friends for pizza. In quotes. Yeah. The listeners can't see your eye roll in quotes around the yeah. word pizza. <laughs> I went to the bookstore to go buy my books. Yep. This is why we get along, you and me. Just little <laughs> bookworms over here. Yep. While other people had quote unquote pizza. That was the textual thing. I started then trying to do experiments, right? Finished high school, stayed out to be able to do reading. Worked at Weiser's to do my deeper reading. You did? You worked there? Yeah, for about two years or so oh, after high school. Wait, wait, wait. What was that like? And let me just really underscore this for folks. This is one of the legendary occult bookshops from New York City. It doesn't exist anymore. Of course, the imprint and Wiser Books has been a sponsor of this podcast. We love Wiser Books. But they are, in fact, an offshoot of this bookshop. Is that what you're saying? And then there's Wiser Antiquarian. Yeah, it all had origins at Wiser's bookstore. Oh. They started doing publishing, I forget when, in the 40s, 50s. Fabulous. I was there when the Necronomicon showed up. <gasps> Anyhow. Whoa. Yeah. yeah, I was there and they were like, check this manuscript out, Brian. And it's like, what is it? Oh, it's, a ne- it's supposed to be from the Necronomicon. And I'm like, what? What's that? H.P. <laughs> Lovecraft. I go, who's he? Mm-hmm. No shit. It was like, I was into the real stuff. Whoa, throwing some occult shade there, yeah. Brian. I like it. <laughs> I like it. No, at the time, so I, you know, I don't know this, but it was like, do you think it's real? And it was like, well, for us, it is. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> some very funny stories around that. Well, first of all, so oh, many yeah. characters, I would imagine, totally. let alone the amazing books that you got to swim around in. Well, here's the thing. They all know it, and I've told them about it, and I apologize, and they said it's all okay. But I used to take books out and have them photocopied. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They're rare books, Mm -hmm. and then have them bound for myself (gasps) and sneak the book back in. Uh, So they would never know it, but they're rare books. Yeah. Alchemy rare books. Yes. Do you still have these photocopies? I have some of them. I gave them to some alchemist friends who were actually wanting to do some work, and it was like, you know what? You should have these. Well, and now so many of these books are digitized, which is incredible. Almost anybody can have access to a lot of these books that I'm sure at the time were so rare and so precious. Totally. It was why I got the job in the bookstore was to get to the basement. What they had down there was I'd spend half my lunch hour reading, going through, lifting up the stuff. We're recording. (laughs) Were there bodies down there, Brian? No, 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 no. They were like manuscripts. (laughs) They were things I found. Yeah. That I bought very inexpensively because they did not know what they had. Got it. And walked out for $5 and eventually resold it to somebody many, many years later for a good amount. All right. It's some funny stuff. But more importantly, it was the access to ideas, access to things that you did not have access. No, My father would ask me, why are you always buying books? He'd go to the library. He goes, no library has the books I have. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's like, where would you go? Yeah, before the internet, for sure. So that's where it started. I had this whole idea of what I needed to know. And then I went back to college, studied chemistry and physics and got my degree there. Oh, okay. I thought you majored in film. I did. That's my master's of fine arts in film. So you started as a scientist and then you topped it off with a master's. I was in... always doing film. You're an alchemist, man. Yeah, I mean... no, that's what I'm trying to tell you. I like, I work in image and word. Yeah. Someone goes, it's so strange. I said, oh, come on. Is it really? Look at what I make. It's like I work in image and word. Yes. I think that's really beautiful because so many people struggle with, am I a writer? Am I an artist? Am I a this? And you've distilled it down. Well, I'm just me. But that's an intention of your life. You work in image and word. That's beautiful, Brian. Poor chain. You work 
an image and word for change. Absolutely. Yeah. My documentary work, when I can have my choice, and even when I don't have my choice, I sneak it in. Oh, yeah. We do things. Tell me more. Tell me more. If you can shift the meaning to something that's a bit more open and a little bit more uplift, you go for it. Hmm. Most producers won't necessarily see it, but you've done something. Mm. We've done stuff in film sometimes where just a few little cuts all of a sudden had a whole shitload of donations come into this family that really desperately needed it. Wow. It's like little weird things like this. Uh, and then also any kind of propaganda work you want to get yourself involved in, I can make you cry. Oh, well, you're a filmmaker and That's an artist. Yeah, yeah. Sons of deception. You know I, I mean? mean, let's just say that you are a benevolent person who uses this <laughs> yeah, for good. Exactly. Am I correct, Brian? Yes, yes. I am on the side of light and good, love <laughs> and justice, all inclusivity. There we go. The in -between. <laughs> there we go. There we go. So... In our final moments together, I want to just see if you can summarize for us why alchemy is a magical practice. Do you see this as being related to magic? Only if you take it as this idea of creating a change. I mean, right there, it's yes. Mm -hmm. Right. But this gets very far because I have a lot of thoughts on this. It depends how you mean it. Alchemy, I think, is more of as a theurgy. Think of horizontal and vertical. Mm -hmm. Theurgy means God work, the work of God. Mm -hmm. Or the gods of the gods is basically creating a channel for the divinity, kind of a Greco-Roman, whichever deities you're working with, this idea of a set, what have you, right? So yes. it is that vertical kind of a thing. And then you have the horizontal, which tends to work with the material world, which does alchemy. But I find that the intent might be different. The intent within magic, maybe using the same method, same technique, seems to be aimed towards this world, making change or things to occur within this world, not necessarily associated with this idea of an ascent or descent. So I kind of think of them as related. It's just a question of what are you focusing on, right? Because alchemy works in the material world and does work in creating change on the horizontal, right? Making materials, making medicines doing all this kind of stuff, but it does have this kind of an idea of an inner practice, however one might define that, within a multitude of forms is up to you, really. I would call it that in the sense of the descent and working with matter. I see like how it shares with shamanism, this mm. idea of a descent into the underworld and a descent into the world. And again, too, if people are thinking of magic in terms of a ceremonial magic, then no, that doesn't really unless you want to bring that in. You will find that within some of the Golden Dawn material, we'll speak of alchemy in terms of ceremonial, magical things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You won't find that from within alchemy. This is one of the things that then helps develop it. There's a lot more to it because there's just a lot more to it. I mm -hmm. find the word both alchemy and magic, especially I've been diving deep, deep, deep into Giordano Bruno. Mm hmm and find a great, interesting richness that would be really good. But I don't have much more. I mean, I tend to see just as a way of discussing a by vertical and horizontal. I notice that you very often have an image of a goddess that I know as Hecate, Hecate, mm -hmm. Hecate. People pronounce mm -hmm. her name in many different ways. This is a goddess of witchcraft, and she 
is also very instrumental in the myth of the descent of Persephone into the underworld. And she helps Demeter find her daughter Persephone and bring her out of the underworld and into the light. And because this is an image and a goddess that you invoke in your artwork and in some of your writings, yes, I guess that's why I'm curious as to your final comments on witchcraft and maybe specifically Uh, her and alchemy. I think specifically her because she's a goddess of many, 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 many things. Mm. The one I really respond to or see it is, is the goddess of lost children. Mm. She's a nurturer, mountain roamer. She's also the goddess of fishermen, Mm. the goddess of goat herds. She takes up in Hesiod's Theogony, one of the earliest works of the generation of the gods. Sure. After all the descriptions, Zeus gets two, three lines. Everybody else gets two, three lines. Hecate, this is more of the Greek pronunciations come out of either Shakespeare, different time periods. Mm -hmm. All pronunciations are correct. You kind of get a sense of where someone's coming from by which one they use. Yeah. I come out of the Neoplatonic, right? Mm-hmm. More of her as the guide of the in-between. Yes. In the inner processes of Neoplatonism, you pass the moon. And in the moon is the goddess Hecate, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. In the Neoplatonic work, it says that the body goes to the earth, the soul goes to the moon, and the spirit goes to the sun, and then one is released to the one. Mm. So the moon is this transitory transition point, but it's that in-between. And to me, that's where alchemy takes place. That's where dream takes place. It's mm. where art takes place. So anytime I do anything, and this gets into the personal now. Yes. She was very personal to me as a child. Yes. Sure, what the hell? I'm leaving soon. Yeah. No, it has to do with visions as a child or hallucinations as a child. Mm-hmm. Very, very sick. Mm. It would show up. Mm. And this is the thing. It's like if you read Hesiod's Theogony, mm-hmm. and then also it is another one. Oh, it's the Orphic Hymns. There's yes. an Orphic Hymn to Hecate, lovely Hecate of the Roads and the Crossroads. Yes, right? I love that hymn. It just goes on, but it gives all the various aspects. The aspect that showed to me was this young woman mm. at the foot of the bed, like Dol Cool. Mm-hmm. Here's another image. I went to Catholic grammar school. And every day as I'd walk up the stairs in the alcove in our little school was a statue of the Virgin Mary who was standing on a crescent moon with a snake. I love that depiction of her, by the way. I do too. It used to upset me very much because of the snake. I liked animals and it really bothered me. That she's stepping on it? Yeah, that she's stepping on Mm -hmm. it. But just a few years after that, as I hit like 13 and I'm doing my readings into esoteric Greek mythology, all this other stuff, it's like, Oh my God, who else rides on a crescent moon drawn by snakes but Hecate? Yes. Right? So I'm thinking, well, this is a really interesting thing. Mary as the intermediary. And then you start to think, is there some kind of a deep mythic, not necessarily cultural crossover, but a deep mythic inner crossover? Uh. It goes on, if we could talk about Sophia in that way too, which ties into this as well, which I also see as a Hecate type character. Mm. But that is it. And then because of that, I'm friends with fishermen, I'm friends with witches, I'm friends with nurses, I'm friends with everybody. (laughs) Read Hesiod. Yes, absolutely. Well, I'm so glad that I'm one of the witches that you are friends with, Brian. Oh, me too. I am just so delighted. I mean, talking to you, I honestly feel like I'm in a trance. (laughs) 
in the best way. So thank you so much for taking the time. In our very last moments together, I know that folks are going to want to read your books, read your zines, which we didn't get to talk about too much, but I love your zines, Brian. Thank you. They're going to want to take your classes, et cetera, et cetera. So what do you have coming up and what is the best way for folks to connect with you? Okay. The best way for folks to connect is probably through the website, keprepress.com. And that's K-H-E-P-R-I-P-R-E-S-S, keprepress.com. Like the god of the sun, the scarab god. The moon, the scarab, right. Yes. Oh, the moon. Why did I think Kepri was the god of the early sun? Well, because it's the scarab who pushes the sun. Ah. So this is the beauty of it. But uh, Kepri is the god of the moon and also of change. And there's the language of transmutation. It means transmutation. Anyhow, there's a lot of little resonances there. Yes. Thank you for reminding me of that. Okay. Kepri Press. Yeah. So keprepress.com. There's a mailing list. I only send out stuff when I either have a new work coming out or if I'm giving some talks. And I often give some workshops on Splendor Solace, on myth and alchemy, on color symbolism and alchemy, things like this. So Mm. I don't proselytize. I don't push. If you've got to find me, join the mailing list and it'll get out. Two things coming up is kind of three. One is I have a new book, Alchemy, which we just kind of talked about. It's being released June 13th being distributed by Penguin Random House. Fabulous. Published by Watkins. It is so good, Brian. Congratulations. I just loved it. I was so happy to get a sneak preview of it. And the illustrations on it by Roxy Jammin are just amazing. The birds, it's like, yeah, we're hoping a whole tattoo thing's going to start happening. (laughs) I can see it. The other thing is, as I say, June 21st, if you join the mailing list, you'll get this. But on June 21st in the evening at 630 at NYU, I'm going to be giving some kind of book release thing. We're just talking about it today. So join the mailing list. You'll get the details. The other one is June 24th, St. Mark's throughout the day on Saturday is the third East Village Zine Fair. Yes. This is incredible. You just got to come out, check out the zines, check out the whole thing. It's really, really, really good. Kepri Press will have a table. I'm hoping to have the new book there, all the zine work. Hang out and talk talk alchemy and Hecate and all of the other delicious topics. Things that go bump in the night. Brian, I could talk to you forever. I really hope that you'll come back and I hope that you and I can see each other in person next time. And I just can't thank you enough for taking the time to do this. I'm so grateful to you. And thank you, Pam. This has been great. It's like feeling back into the real world, edging back in again. So thank you. Thank you. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Brian Cotnoir for transmuting our conversation into gold. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop us an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and you just might make it on the Witchwire. The Witch Wave is a phantasmophile production written and produced by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was recorded and edited by Josh Wilcox and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and Eye by Lycanthia. Our new Witch Wave logo was designed by Thunderwing. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman, Laura Antal, and Cece Pascal. 
You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website and now buy Witchwave merch at witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and give us lots and lots of sparkly stars. It really, truly makes a difference and helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WitchWavePod. And you can check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. Please consider ordering my book, Witchcraft, and or picking up my book, Waking the Witch, which are both available everywhere now. And if you want more Witch Wave or you would just like to support the show, please join us over on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash witchwave. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave.